Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Only seven months after Alberta became a province in April 1906, a woman stood in front of the members of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. She was presenting her dower legislation, which if passed would give new property rights to married women who were abandoned by their husbands or were widows. At the time, if husbands left or died, women typically lost everything, including property, while still being expected to support the children. It was an unenviable situation, and the woman standing in front of the legislature hoped to change that. She had spoken with Alexander Rutherford, the first Premier of Alberta, and he had pledged his support. He led the Liberal Party of Alberta, which had 22 of 25 seats. His support ensured an expected easy passing, and she was helped in her pursuit by the fact that her close friend, Annie Boulia, who supported the legislation as well, was the spouse of the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta. With these powerful allies, it seemed as though the legislation was a lock to pass. Or so she thought. When it came time to vote, Rutherford rescinded his support. Without it, the rest of the party followed suit, and the act died on the legislature floor. But that was not the end of the fight. The woman who had spent decades campaigning for women's rights would spend decades more in that pursuit. Her name was Henrietta Edwards, and this wouldn't be the last time the Alberta legislature would see the Dower Act. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Henrietta Louise Muir was born on December 18, 1849 in Montreal to Jane and William Muir, an upper-middle-class family. The deeply devoted evangelical family built the first Baptist chapel in Montreal, as well as the Montreal Baptist College. Her parents were also highly progressive for the time, especially when it came to women's rights. For example, their marriage contract guaranteed Edward's mother Jane her own property and protection from legal responsibility for William's business obligations and personal debts should he pass away before her. Edward's grandfather was similarly progressive, choosing to equally divide his estate among his children, regardless of sex. From an early age, Henrietta displayed an artistic talent, which would serve her well in her life. 
She was homeschooled initially by her parents before she attended private school, where she was inspired by women who advocated for them to be included in academia. In 1865, her father and uncle sponsored a debate on the right of the woman to vote in political elections. And while the bill was unsuccessful, it sparked an interest in suffrage that would last for the rest of Henrietta's life. In 1871, her mother established the Montreal Educational Association, and Henrietta started to attend lectures on arts and science at McGill University, but she was unable to attend officially due to being a woman. To try and remedy this, her mother, Jane, campaigned extensively for women to be admitted to McGill as students. The university finally admitted women in 1884, but only for the art program and in separate classes from the men. It would be decades before women could enroll to earn things like a medical degree or other science degrees. In 1874, Henrietta asked her father to rent a house in Montreal. This house was the base for the Working Girls Association, which her and her sister Amelia founded. It served as a reading room, library, and gathering place for young women in the city. It effectively became one of the first YWCAs in Canadian history. The organization also published a periodical, The Working Woman of Canada, which brought attention to the working conditions of women and was funded almost entirely by the sale of Henrietta's artwork. At the same time, Henrietta attempted to enroll in art school, but was denied because she was a woman. Wanting to train as an artist, she traveled to New York City to study under Wyatt Eaton, the founder of the Society of American Artists. Upon her return in 1875, Henrietta married Oliver C. Edwards, a prominent doctor who had a strong interest in homeopathic medicine. She copied the marriage contract of her parents before she made anything official with her new husband. Together, Henrietta and Oliver had three children, and he was always a strong supporter of his wife's causes, and often taught health classes at her Working Girls Association. In 1883, she moved with her children to Indian Head in what is now Saskatchewan, Oliver had already been living in the area for a year to get established before the family joined him. Her husband was a government doctor, serving in the Indigenous Reserve nearby, and in her new home, Henrietta continued her work pushing for women's rights in Canada. She also informally studied Canadian law at home, especially codes that concerned women and children. And while in Indian Head, she established the Capel Women's Christian Temperance Union, and was instrumental in getting a cottage hospital maternity section built in Indian Head. A few years after moving to Indian Head, Henrietta's husband fell ill. Now, let me pause for a second. I couldn't find a direct mention of his ailment. Regardless, the family moved to Ottawa in 1890 to be closer to modern hospitals. And although Oliver was still able to work, homeopathy medicine was not popular in Ottawa, and as a result, his practice lacked patience, and the family's financial situation began to suffer. To help bring in money for the family, Henrietta began to paint miniatures for prominent figures including future Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier and Lord Strathcona, one of the richest men in Canada. You might even recognize Strathcona as the person who drove in the last spike on the Canadian Pacific Railway in 1885. Now back to Henrietta. While in Ottawa, she also opened an art studio and provided lessons for young artists in the city. And it was also there that her profile started to rise as a leader in the women's rights movement. 
With the increased profile came more opportunities to showcase her artwork as well. The Canadian government asked Henrietta to paint a set of dishes that were displayed at the Canadian exhibit at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. She began working with Lady Aberdeen as well, the wife of the Governor General, and together they created the National Council of Women of Canada in 1893. The organization exists to this day and is one of the oldest advocacy organizations in Canada. Four years later, in 1897, Henrietta established the Victorian Order of Nurses with Lady Aberdeen. This is another organization that still exists and provides support services to over 10,000 people from Ontario to Nova Scotia. With these organizations, Henrietta routinely provided help on petitions, resolutions, and official documents, thanks to the years she studied law at home. She also used her growing legal knowledge to campaign for prison reform in the country. Now, after her husband recovered from his illness, he moved to Regina in 1896 to work with the Department of Indian Affairs. But money was still tight, so Henrietta and her children moved in with family in Montreal instead of joining Oliver in Regina. In Montreal, Henrietta worked with women's organizations and continued to pursue her art career. Meanwhile, her husband saw patients throughout Alberta and the Yukon until 1901 when he returned to Montreal. Reunited, Henrietta and her husband moved to the Northwest Territories in 1904, settling near Fort McLeod in what is now south of Calgary, Alberta. Her husband once again served as a medical officer on a reserve, this time for the Blood Tribe. Serving 1,700 people on the reserve was no small task. This was the largest reserve in Canada and half the size of Holland. Oliver was the only doctor, and by now he was approaching 50 years old, so traveling across the reserve to see patients was difficult. To ease the travel and workload, Henrietta often went with him, which was nothing new for her. Over the course of their marriage, she had often traveled with him on his rounds and lived among the Cree, Assiniboine, and Blackfoot. She photographed indigenous people and created artwork of them. The couple also accumulated a large collection of indigenous artifacts, and these interactions allowed for a deep respect to be fostered between Henrietta and the indigenous women. In 1905, Henrietta was given the name Otter Woman by the Blood Indigenous. This name was given to her as she was seen as a strong spiritual leader. And it was during this time that the seed was planted in Henrietta's mind for the battle that was to come. On these medical rounds with her husband, Henrietta saw that many prairie women and children struggled after divorce or the death of a husband, both on and off the reserve. Sometimes the husband had sold the family house out from under his wife, regardless of how much she had invested or helped pay for the house. This showed Henrietta the importance of having dower legislation in the province. It also sparked in her the belief that women needed more political power to make changes to the law. To that end, she joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union and began to engage in campaigns for women's suffrage. Women's suffrage was growing in strength at this point as women from across the country campaigned to gain the right to vote. Women in the first decade of the 20th century couldn't sit on city or town councils, for the most part, or represent a riding provincially or federally. In Ontario, unmarried women could vote in municipal elections, but married women were barred from doing so. For a woman to vote in a municipal election, she had to have the same property qualifications as a man, something that was exceedingly rare at the time. 
1901, Henrietta wrote, The woman is queen in her home and reigns there, but unfortunately the laws she makes reach no further than her domain. If her laws, written or unwritten, are to be enforced outside, she must come into the political world as well. And she has come. The husband in the home had power over children, how they were educated, what religion they practiced, and even their earnings until they turned 21. Henrietta said that the mother had the same legal power as a stranger in this arrangement and argued that single women had more rights than married women. Henrietta commented at one point that until 1900, there was little interest among women for political equality and even hostility towards it. But by the early part of the 1910s, things were beginning to change as women started to pursue higher education and work outside the home. Henrietta said in 1907, We do not ask for the vote because we are antagonistic to men, far from it. We do not want the vote in order that we may vote against the men. The men are our fathers, husbands and brothers. Their best interests are ours. We want the vote that we may strengthen their hand in all that stands for right and justice. A year later in 1908, Henrietta wrote her first book, The Legal Status of Canadian Women. As her fight for women's suffrage was gaining steam, she suffered a personal tragedy when her husband died in 1915. No longer allowed to live in the agency house on the Blood Reserve, she moved to a small home in Fort McLeod, using money loaned to her by her son William. With the loss of her husband, she threw herself into her suffrage work, and with that, she made history. Because as the First World War raged on, wartime rationing became stricter. To deal with rationing and its impact on the morale of Canadians, an advisory committee was created by the federal government. Henrietta was appointed to this committee, making her the first woman to be called upon for a review of public policy in Canadian history. She advised the committee to establish a Department of Public Health and a Department of Child Welfare. She also demanded that the women working in factories be paid the same as men, who had left those positions to fight overseas. Her work with the committee greatly raised her profile among women's groups across the country, and she became a sought-after speaker on the issue of suffrage and women's rights. She started to work heavily on campaigns, writing petitions and attending meetings. Her work, along with that of others in Alberta, came to fruition on April 19, 1916, when Alberta gave women the right to vote. Henrietta said, The Alberta woman who, by their courage, endurance, and ability, did teamwork with their husbands and brothers in all that has been made for the development of the province. In 1921, Henrietta wrote her second book, The Legal Status of Women in Alberta. Soon after publishing her second book, Henrietta began to work with women's rights activists Louise McKinney, Irene Parlby, and Emily Murphy to lobby the Alberta government to recognize dower and matrimonial property rights. It had been two decades since she had first taken the cause to the Alberta government, only to be betrayed by then-Premier Alexander Rutherford. And she was ready to do it again. Now, Parlby was the first woman to hold a cabinet position in the Alberta legislature, while Louise McKinney was the first woman elected to the Alberta legislature. Murphy was the first female magistrate in Canadian history. And it was their hope that they could get the Dower Act finally passed in the province. They were aided by the fact that the Liberal Party was out of power, and the United Farmers of Alberta, a more progressive government, was now leading the province. 
And that's how, in 1925, the four women were successful in protecting married women's property rights with the Dower Act. Due to the act, a home could not be sold in Alberta without the signature of the wife. Unfortunately, while the act was highly progressive for its time, it would be years before it was properly enforced. With that battle won, the four women set their sights on a new target. For that fight, they were joined by Nellie McClung, who played a leading role in women's suffrage, helping women gain the vote in Manitoba and then Alberta. These five women became known as the Famous Five because they changed Canadian history. It had all begun with a question Murphy had years earlier. Since women could now sit in the legislatures and parliament, could one sit in the Canadian Senate? To test the issue, Murphy allowed her name to be put forward to Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden, Prime Minister from 1911 to 1920, as a candidate for Canadian Senate. Borden stated that he was willing to do so, but he was unable to legally because of the 1876 British common law that ruled women were eligible for pains and penalties, not rights and privileges. In other words, women were not persons under the law. So, over the next several years, Murphy began to work for clarification on how women were regarded under the British North America Act of 1867 to find a way to allow them to become senators. During that time, Canada went through three prime ministers, Borden, Arthur Meehan, and then William Lyne Mackenzie King. Eventually, the five women decided to sign a petition on August 27, 1927, asking the federal government to refer the issue to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, Henrietta was approaching 80 years old and was the only member of the famous five to be born before Confederation. To put that in perspective, Henrietta was founding organizations to help women while the other famous five were toddlers. But despite her age, she threw herself into the new fight for women's rights. On their petition, the women asked the court to consider two main questions. The first was, if power was vested in the Governor-General and Council in Canada, or the Parliament of Canada, or either of them, to appoint a female to the Senate of Canada. The second was if it was constitutionally possible for the Parliament of Canada, under the provisions of the British North America Act or otherwise, to make provisions for the appointment of a female to the Senate of Canada. Ernest Lapointe, who was the Minister of Justice, reviewed the petition and recommended that the questions be narrowed down to one, which related to women being appointed to the Senate of Canada. On October 19, 1927, the Cabinet submitted the question to the Supreme Court of does the word persons in section 24 of the British North America Act, 1867, include female persons? The Supreme Court heard the case on March 14, 1928, and issued its decision on April 24 of that same year. Chief Justice of Canada, Francis Alexander Anglin, reviewed the provisions of qualifications to be a senator, included that the person had to be at least 30 years old, a British subject, own real and personal property worth at least $4,000, and live in the province that they were appointed in. He also described the qualifications as continuing the pronoun he, which contributed to the argument that only men could be appointed to the Senate. In the end, all five justices held that qualified persons under Section 24 of the Act did not include women. Now, there's a common misconception that the Supreme Court held that women were not persons, but the majority of the Supreme Court stated that there was no doubt that the word persons, when standing alone, includes women. 
The court made this clear in the judgment, but the Supreme Court did not answer directly the question posed by the government, giving its own interpretation instead. The formal judgment of the court was, understood to mean, are women eligible for appointment to the Senate of Canada? The question is answered in the negative. But that was not the end of the fight, because back then the Supreme Court was not the highest court in the land. In 1929, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council was the court of last resort in the British Empire. And on October 18, 1929, the Lord Chancellor, Lord Sankey, found that the meaning of qualified persons could be read to include women, which reversed the decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. In his ruling, he wrote, The exclusion of women from all public offices is a relic of days more barbarous than ours, and that, to those who ask why the word person should include females, the obvious answer is, why should it not? Henrietta said of the decision, This decision marks the abolition of sex in politics. Personally, I don't care whether or not women ever sit in the Senate, but we fought for the privilege of them to do so. We sought to establish the personal individuality of women, and the decision is the announcement of our victory. On January 23, 1930, the Calgary Women's Canadian Club held a victory lunch for the Famous Five. When Henrietta spoke, she gave credit to the many women who had supported the petition and to the men who supported the cause. Then, on February 15, 1930, Kareen Wilson became the first woman appointed to the Senate of Canada. Then, 632 days later, on November 9, 1931, Henrietta Edwards passed away. Despite her role in the person's case only two years previous, there was very little news coverage of her death beyond a few quick blurbs in various newspapers. At her funeral, the Reverend said, She is passed on to her reward, but in the passing she has thrown down the gauntlet and left a challenge to those who are left behind to carry on the good work which was her life interest. In 1962, Henrietta was recognized as a person of national historic significance, and in 2009, she was named an honorary senator, along with the other four women of the famous five. On December 18, 2014, a Google Doodle was created to honor Henrietta on what would have been her 165th birthday. Doodle artist Kate Beaton said, Henrietta was a woman who made things happen and fought for it all with unflappable conviction. Canada is a richer country for having her as a citizen. There's another part of Henrietta's legacy which, sadly, has not aged as well as her work for women's rights. Today, the concept of eugenics is deeply frowned upon. The idea of sterilizing a group of the population based on factors such as intelligence is condemned, but that was not always the case. In the early 20th century, eugenics was not only a popular idea, but it was also government policy in various jurisdictions. There were 32 American states and two Canadian provinces, British Columbia and Alberta, which implemented eugenics. Of the two, Alberta went the furthest with its program. The Alberta Eugenics Board was in place from 1928 until 1972, during which time 2,832 sterilizations were approved, mostly on Indigenous women. And something to think about, because this horrible history is not actually a thing of the past. A Senate report released just last year showed that Indigenous, Black and other women of colour 
were coercively sterilized between 2005 and 2010. The committee says it is aware of a case of forced sterilization as recent as 2019. But back then, supporters of eugenics argued that alcoholism, promiscuity, and criminal behavior was due to low intelligence, and sterilizing those of low intelligence would improve society. Many prominent Canadians also supported eugenics, including the father of Medicare himself, Tommy Douglas, who wrote his thesis at McMaster University in 1933 on the topic of what he called the subnormal family and the benefit of eugenics. In his defense, I will add that he abandoned his support for eugenics by the 1940s and refused to implement it in Saskatchewan when he was premier. This brings us to Henrietta, who along with the other members of the famous five, was a supporter of eugenics. In 1928, she was appointed to the Advisory Committee on Health in Alberta, during which time the Sexual Sterilization Act was passed. And while other members of the Famous Five, such as Nellie McClung, may have been stronger supporters of eugenics, Henrietta believed that the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act was a solution to what she termed as moral perverts. Henrietta also felt that non-Anglo immigration to Canada should be limited, and at the same time, Likely due to her many interactions with Indigenous people, she argued for legal equality for Indigenous women to give them the same protections as white women in Canada. Henrietta, although she was a trailblazer when it came to women's rights, sadly helped shape policies that created structures that uphold systems of oppression, like so many others in Canadian history. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Eugenics Archive, Famous Five Foundation, Wikipedia, Library and Archives Canada, 200 Remarkable Canadian Women, Maclean's, Calgary Herald, The Ottawa Citizen, and Wineglass Ranch. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.